Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson, and we made it to Friday again. Coming up, we're going to learn about the first female doctor in the United States. People say, you know, so if you had coffee with Elizabeth and Emily, what would you ask them? I'm not sure I'd really want to have coffee with them, but I, I admire them so deeply. Plus, we've got some cat advice from a very punk rock expert. But first, our panel about the week that was. With us today, we have Meha Ahmad, a producer for WBEZ's Midday Talk Show Reset. Meha, hello. Hey, Greta. And for her first time on our Nerd App panel, we've got the host of the NPR show 1A, Jen White. Jen, hello. Greta. Jen. Hello. <laughs> Okay, so I think this week we just have to start with the weather because it is just weathering kind of everywhere. We've got storms across the U.S. Some of them have been devastating, especially in Texas, where millions of people are without power and water. Jen, this is something that you've been talking about on the show this week. What have you been hearing? Just that people are really struggling. I have several family members who live in the Houston area. And they've been without power for days and water because there's now a water advisory in certain parts of the state, which means you have to boil water in order to use it. But if you don't have power, how are you boiling water? Mm -hmm. Um, And and we're not just talking about, you know, people in in comfortable, you know, homes, people who are unhomed um, are, are really struggling Um, people in lower income areas really struggling and it's called into question whether the state should have been prepared yeah that's something I wanted to ask about because it seems like there you know like the my question is like if it's about aging infrastructure or a failure to update because of climate change or it kind of seems like it might be a little of each huh I think the answer is yes. And um, I know there are going to be a lot of investigations into what happened. I think what's been sort of disturbing to watch play out, though, is the lack of communication uh, from state officials with people who are suffering right now. Um, there have been multiple deaths related to the weather. Um, there was a report this morning on NPR about you know, children dying from carbon monoxide poisoning as their parents are trying to keep them warm. Um, So I hope that in the aftermath of this, they're able to figure out how this happened and how to prevent it from happening again, because extreme weather events are going to continue to occur. Um, This is our our new reality. And I know that, you know, Texas is one state that's, that's really struggling right now, but we're seeing this across the country. I mean, in Chicago, where you and Meha are, How much snow is on the ground at this point? It is snowing again today. I am about to lose my mind. 70,000 feet of <laughs> snow. I had to shovel yesterday. Not a lot. I'm like, if you saw my Twitter, I, I shoveled about 10 feet of like of a Walkway. sidewalk, mm-hmm. which is not, you know, it's about two people's lengths worth, right? Like it's not big. 
And it was so much snow that it was actually on like, like it was kind of like a wall on either side of me. It's crazy. And I just thought like, yeah, I'm not doing this again. I mean, literally 10 feet and my arms just fell off. And I'm like, and I'm, and, and like you said, like some of us are in sort of comfortable positions. Like I just went back inside right, and I'm like, right. I ain't going back out again. But a lot of people are not so lucky, right? Like a lot of people are not so privileged. Um, and that's, and this is something that we see every year in Chicago. It's, 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 it's just wild. It's just wild. Yeah, the snow. And, you know, I mean, yes, Chicago, like in terms of infrastructure, I think Chicago is much better set up than a lot of places in Texas are for sure. But I mean, yeah. And to speak of being privileged, I mean, my car won't start. I need a jump. I need to drive it around. I haven't left the house in days. I probably just won't leave the house in more days. I'm lucky enough to be able to work from home. I'm still kind of losing my mind, though. (laughs) There's this weird feeling of like, we were already stuck at home because of the pandemic. Right. And so you feel more stuck than usual. And it's like, I don't know, like nothing's really changed if you've just been working from home and doing stuff at home. But like, it's just like now there's not even the option of going for like a walk. <laughs> so it's just so weird. That's what I keep saying is that like I really liked the illusion of the option of going somewhere. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so another story from this week that I thought, I don't know, I, I we'll get into how I feel about it, I guess. It's about Joss Whedon. Uh, he's the creator of shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Firefly and Dollhouse. He's also done some Marvel stuff. Allegations of inappropriate behavior about him have been bubbling up for a while now, but last week was a big one. We heard from Charisma Carpenter, who was in Buffy and Angel, and she wrote about her experiences on set, which I think are fair to call horrific. Um, Joss has withdrawn from several big projects over the last couple of years. Most recently, it was an HBO show that he created that's supposed to come out in April. Um, I'm wondering if this is a bummer for y'all, Meha. Were you bummed to find this out? Um, I was because I was... And am like a super big Buffy fan and yeah. Angel fan. And I, you know, I liked Avengers Age of Ultron, which he directed and not a lot of people love that film, but it was one of my favorites. And like, I was actually like, you know, I don't follow a whole lot of directors, but he was one that I really did. So yeah. it was a bummer, but it's like, unfortunately, not surprising. Yeah. What Charisma Carpenter was saying that like, he essentially kind of ruined her career right right you know she was a household name and now you really don't see her in too many projects and i don't know yeah i'm bummed yeah i think the surprise thing is a really interesting one because i don't know i mean i think in the case of joss whedon for a very long time he was praised i mean you know buffy is like a badass lady main character right like he was pretty good at building those um but i think the surprise question is a really interesting one jen were you were you at all surprised by this I will quote uh, WBEZ's Natalie Moore here. <laughs> Something she said live on the air once to me, all your faves are trash. That's what she said. And it was true. Just- I remember that. <laughs> as soon as I saw that, I was like, yeah, that holds up. Um, yeah. And I, I was I was really disturbed by Charisma Carpenter's um, story, but also by Michelle Trachtenberg's. Yes. Um, yeah. The fact that like there was a rule on set that he couldn't be in a room alone mm-hmm. with her. What the hell. Yeah. Uh, and 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 it's a bummer because I also love Buffy the series. Love it. Um, also really loved Angel. And mm-hmm. and I think about how unfortunate it is that the women in these series who created these incredibly dynamic characters, um, Buffy and Willow and Tara, that the work they did gets yeah. tarnished by his behavior. Yeah. 
And that's that's part of what really pisses me off about it, because they did incredible work. So, I mean, you say you love Buffy. You said it in the present tense. I mean, does that mean you will continue to be a fan of that show? You know, like, obviously, the whole art versus artist conversation isn't new either. But I'm curious in this specific instance, like, do you think you're still going to be able to enjoy Buffy? I think so because I enjoy their work. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. I, it's been years since I've watched the series now. Yeah, yeah. But if if it crosses my path again, like I feel like I can watch it through the lens of the work those incredible women did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because as much as we talk about these showrunners the people who are doing the acting, their work matters too. Yeah. You yeah. know, their work matters too. And I hope Charisma is getting some hefty residual checks off yeah, that royalties. show. Yeah, for real. Yeah, it's funny. I haven't seen Buffy in, I don't know, probably 12 years or something. But I think I was kind of keeping it in my pocket for like, if things get real weird with this pandemic, I can always just watch Buffy. And now I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't know about that. What do you think, Maha? I think it's on Amazon <laughs> Prime for free, by the way. <laughs> so... And by I think I mean I know because I've already started watching him. <laughs> um, no, yeah, I, I agree. I 100% agree with Jen. Like it's you know, like it, it really was like those those are characters and storylines that I really looked up to, right? Like we didn't have a lot of those like really mm-hmm. badass ladies. Like Buffy really was like iconic, especially teenage girls. You yeah, know? you know, like yeah. oh my god, like I I'm like I I can't let him be the reason that like this yeah. I don't watch this show yeah. or I don't love this show, right? And I also think that a lot of pressure gets put on us as viewers to like take a moral stand on this stuff, which I think is important, even though like the work has been done and blah, blah. But what we really need to be talking about are the systems that enable the behavior. Yeah. Yep. Why are these, um, why are these production companies really doing this calculation in their head where like, oh, he makes a lot of money. So sure, you know, a degree of abusive behavior, it's all good. Right. You know, like, like It's really about that system and how that system works that allows someone like him to thrive for so long without any repercussions for the way he treats people on his set. Yeah. The way we give a pass to especially white dudes who are genius, yeah. you know, is, is a real bummer. Yeah. Especially when it's at the you know, to the detriment of other potentially super brilliant women who we just don't even know about because, yeah. you know. Because imagine, I mean, when you think about it, imagine if the showrunner uh, role had been given to a woman. Like if people were mm-hmm. like, Josh is, Josh is out of line, give him Das Boot <laughs> and let's get the woman in here <laughs> to run this show. Like, I wonder what the show would be like, but we yeah. don't, we'll never know that because he was enabled. Yeah. So something else that really caught the internet's attention for some reason this week is the Tarzan soundtrack. Yes, I am talking about the songs in the 1999 Disney cartoon. Uh, they were written and performed by Phil Collins and BuzzFeed actually came out with an article with the headline, Phil Collins is finally getting the credit he deserves for the Tarzan soundtrack. First, I have to know, are y'all fans? Meha, I have a feeling you probably are. I'm a fan of both Tarzan and Phil Collins. <laughs> what about you, Jen? I was not 
super crazy about the Tarzan soundtrack when it came out. However, <laughs> however, long time Bill Collins fan. Okay. Well, I grew up okay. in like I'm an 80s baby. Like we're talking Miami Vice. <laughs> like, that's that's the music of my soul and my generation. Like Tarzan came much later in life, but I was about that Miami Vice life with Bill Collins. So old school Bill Collins. <sighs> I don't know. I just thought, especially that headline from BuzzFeed, like finally getting the credit he deserves for the Tarzan sound. Like that, You'll Be In My Heart was on the Billboard charts for 19 weeks after Tarzan came out. Like there was a Disney themed Super Bowl halftime show in 2000 because of the Tarzan soundtrack. There was? Yes. Back on YouTube. Like (laughs) we were looking at, I mean, Phil Collins is like probably the second richest drummer in the world after Ringo Starr. Like the idea that he is like on the come up, I just think is so funny. Greta, what's with all the Phil Collins hate, man? <laughs> Listen, I don't, I don't hate Phil Collins by any stretch of the imagination. I just feel like to pretend that Phil Collins is like by any degree underrated. I just think is like really though. Is that is that what we need to be discussing? It was insulting though. Like that sounds a little mean. <laughs> but let me tell you, I I think I know why Phil Collins is beloved and why. I mean, because like if you listen to his music. He has this way of making a song linger with you. Yeah. Whether it's like the right, whether it's that or that last phrase in "You'll Be in My Heart." Just look over your shoulder. Just look over your shoulder. And just look over your shoulder, and it just like, and you just sing, and it's like, yes, I'll look over my shoulder forever because. I'll be in your heart. Like, he has to get Yeah. Here's the thing. Okay, here's the thing. I gotta, I gotta say. The Tarzan soundtrack, I mean, like, you'd think you wouldn't have to go that hard for a cartoon soundtrack that, like, mostly is catered to kids. But homie went hard. Like, he went in. He went all in. Like, that is, there are multiple songs that slap on that album. <laughs> Okay, well, I appreciate y'all's perspectives. And thank you so much for coming on the show. It was so much fun to talk to both of you, Maha Jen. Thank you. You're welcome, Greta. Love you. Thank you. Love you, too. Okay, okay. I mean, it is, like, ridiculously catchy. I get it. I get it. All right, next up, we've got the story of two of the first female doctors in America and how to handle your cats under COVID. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tanwen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. 
milestone for you. 200 years ago this month, Elizabeth Blackwell was born. She went on to become the first female doctor in the United States, and her story is fascinating. Janice Nomura is the author of The Doctor's Blackwell, a nonfiction book that explores not only the life of Elizabeth, but also her sister Emily, who became a doctor as well. Janice, welcome to Nerdette. Thanks so much for having me. So Elizabeth Blackwell, first woman to receive an MD in America. It was in 1849. She originally was not interested in studying medicine. Is that right? That's right. She wasn't one of those people who was called to science or liked taking care of people or was fascinated with healing. She really chose medicine very consciously and strategically as a way to make a point about the idea that women could be anything they wanted to be just by virtue of how hard they worked and how talented they were. And what's really fascinating is that essentially what happened was everyone decided to let her go to medical school as a joke. Yeah, well, she got a a sheaf of rejections, rejection after rejection. Um, And while she was applying and sending all these letters fruitlessly to all these medical schools, she was in Philadelphia studying with a rather prominent private physician who was nice enough to teach her stuff. (laughs) And he wrote a letter for her kind of supporting her cause. And it ended up at this tiny uh, rural medical school in Geneva, New York, in the Finger Lakes, where the faculty wasn't quite brave enough to flat out reject Uh, a woman who was arriving under the auspices of this prominent physician. Mm -hmm. So instead of just saying, nah, the idea of having a woman physician here is too outrageous, they punted and they gave the question to their students and said, here's this outrageous proposition. If any one of you objects to this, we're not doing it, but you guys decide. What do you all think? Right. (laughs) The students, you know, this was the provinces, and medicine was not the uh, prestigious, academically challenging thing it is today. Um, It was sort of what you did if you weren't smart enough for the law. And Mm. this was a boisterous bunch of boys who quickly recognized that, A, their professors were cowards, and B, this was a serious opportunity for fun. Um, So they had a meeting that night, and they basically bludgeoned anybody who objected and triumphantly returned their unanimous um, endorsement of Elizabeth Blackwell the next day, and then forgot about it, assuming that it was some prank that somebody else was playing on them until she walked in three weeks later. I just love that so much. And then the best part of that story is, how well did Elizabeth Blackwell do in that school? Well, what do you think? She rocked out. She had a mission from God, she thought, uh, to prove this point. She was working with a a level of determination and motivation that none of her classmates had. Um, And she had also been sort of struggling along with whatever medical textbooks she could scrounge up for years at that point. And the idea that she was sitting in front of professors who were teaching her things and actually having a chance to dissect real specimens was kind of ecstatic, even though she wasn't all that interested in medicine to begin with, actually doing it for real was still really stimulating and exciting. So yeah, she um, left them all in her wake. I mean, she literally graduated first in her class, right? Yes. Yeah. And and actually wrote a thesis um, that was published in the Buffalo Medical Journal as the lead article, which was all kinds of wild at the moment. Oh, I just love that so much. So tell me about Emily. So Emily was five years younger than Elizabeth. There were there were nine Blackwell siblings, five girls. Wow. Emily was the next youngest girl. And I think Elizabeth, having started on this path, realizing how steep and lonely it was going to be, uh, wanted make, to make sure she had some company and um, sort of esteemed her own siblings more highly than any other human. So <laughs> looked around and said, okay, Emily, you're the smartest of my sisters. You follow me into medicine. And I think Emily 
A was kind of into biology, botany, science. She was she was sort of turned on by that. Uh, and B, she had three older domineering sisters that she was used to kind of going along with. So she went along um, and then I think discovered that it suited her. Medicine suited her better than it suited Elizabeth, really. Wow, that's so interesting. You mean in some of the sort of like maybe caretaking aspects of medicine? Not the caretaking stuff. Um, <laughs> in terms of empathy, neither of them had a whole lot. But in terms <laughs> in terms of the science part and the technique and the innovation and the, okay, here is this surgical problem. How can we do it better? That really appealed to her. She took to it and pursued it. She also took to it a little better because um, Elizabeth hit a snag early in her career. Just after she graduated from medical school, she went to Paris to study uh, practical medicine um, and ended up in a maternity hospital where she contracted an eye infection that caused her to lose one eye horrifically. That kind of put a cramp in her surgical career. So she moved more toward the policy and public health aspects of medicine quite quickly, whereas Emily, you know, didn't have that disability and was able to pursue the, the science more more avidly. So obviously, these are two fascinating characters. It kind of feels like one of those things where, like, even if you were writing a fictional story, you couldn't have made it up better. (laughs) In some ways. But I'm curious, I mean, why do you think their stories are so resonant today? Their story, to me, is a lesson that I don't think we're all finished learning about how we see trailblazing women and how we admire them. You know, these were women who were they weren't particularly nice. Um, they were not warm and cuddly people. They were not uh, perky and pretty people. Um, they really didn't care what anybody thought about them. And a lot of their opinions were out of step with even the women's movement of the day. Right. They didn't support women's suffrage. They didn't because they really believed that women needed to sort of prove their own power and in, and and claim their own independence before they had something like the vote. Hmm. If you gave women of the day the vote, they thought they would just vote the way their men told them to. So they were out of step, yet they did this thing that is undeniably important and creates this incredible legacy. And so we need to admire them, even though not everything they did or said is necessarily admirable. And I think that's something that's so important right now, especially in this moment where everybody's talking about cancel culture. Yeah. Um, the, the ability to hold in your mind simultaneously someone's incredible triumph and their flaws. I think we're all just starting to learn how to do that. So was that a theme that you knew about going into, I'm thinking about you deciding to write a book about these women. Right. Did you know right off the bat, like, oh, these ladies are real complicated? Or was it not until you started writing that you were like, oh, this story of these trailblazing women maybe isn't as, you know, worthy of putting on a pedestal as I thought initially? Yeah, no, I, the, the complexity is what attracted me. You know, yeah. I, re- I I had never heard of the Blackwells until five years ago. This, despite the fact that I had grown up in New York and considered myself a feminist and was really interested in math and science and had uh-huh. even been pre-med at one point. I had wow. never heard of them. Um, and when I when I did hear of them, I started investigating and realized that mostly you can find them on the children's biography shelf, um, mm-hmm. where all of the complexity is smoothed away and they become <laughs> little heroines that are the first to do this. And, and it's really just Elizabeth. You don't even see Emily, really. Right. Um, but when I started going deeper... I realized very quickly that these 
women were prickly, spiky, um, difficult people. And at first that was sort of like, ooh, mm, maybe, maybe this isn't where I want to go. Um, but the more I, th- th- they wouldn't go away. They wouldn't leave me alone. <laughs> and so I kept coming back to them and realizing eventually that that was the point, that the fact that I wasn't sure what to do with them was what made them interesting. And yeah. what, what, and, and what, and was the reason why there really weren't a lot of grown-up biographies of them. Because I think people had sort of picked them up and then put them down because, <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> I don't know if how much time I want to spend with these women. Mm-hmm. But that to me was the, was the interesting thing. You know, I, people say, you know, so if you had coffee with Elizabeth and Emily, what would you ask them? I, I'm not sure I'd really want to have coffee with them, but <laughs> I, I admire them so deeply um, in all of their complexity. Oh, that's so cool. So... I'm curious if there's anything that you took away while writing this book that that maybe you think about on a day when you're feeling particularly downtrodden or exhausted or overwhelmed when it comes to progress, especially around women's rights. Wow, that's a big question. (laughs) Um, The thing that inspires me most about Elizabeth Blackwell is that there was nothing around her to hook into. She started from scratch within her own mind and made something happen. Um, and, and that, to me, the fact that, that anyone can ever do that, um, all of my, you know, carping and complaining <laughs> suddenly falls away. And I think, <laughs> gosh, you know, um, let's, let's, just, let's just raise the gaze and, and, and look a little bit farther toward the horizon like she did. Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. Thank you for writing such a compelling, complicated book about such compelling, complicated characters and for talking to me about it, Janice. Well, thank you. It was a great pleasure. Janice Nomura is the author of The Doctor's Blackwell. It is out now. A lot of us are nearing one full year of working from home, which means in some ways one year of super delighted dogs and 52 weeks of pissed off cats. Daniel Qualiozzi is the heavily tattooed man behind Go Cat Go. Yes, that was a combination of cat and tattoo. And no, I am not ashamed to have made that terrible pun. Go Cat Go is a behavioral consultation service devoted to cats. Dan, hi. Hi. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Oh, my gosh. Thanks for coming on. So how does one become a cat slash human consultant? (laughs) There are a lot of pathways. I can speak for my own path. Yeah, sure. In the early 2000s, I took a volunteer position at the San Francisco SPCA, and I just fell in love with working with people and matchmaking people with cats. Hmm. And I started to understand cats more. I became a cat behavior specialist for the San Francisco SPCA and worked there for 13 years. Wow. So in my 12th to 13th year, I said to myself, why is there not somebody out there who is talking people off the ledge who can go to their homes and stop them from surrendering cats to me? Because I was the guy, I was the mm-hmm. guy sitting at that desk who had to sit with you crying while you're giving away your best friend. And yeah. it took a big toll on me. So 
Um, I launched my business, Go Cat Go, in 2012 to remedy that situation, to fill that gap. And it just exploded. I quit the shelter job and I, I'm on my eighth year going on nine doing this as a, you know, a sole proprietor in the Bay Area. And I don't have much competition. That's so cool. What a trip. Yeah. So I'm sure you're familiar with the joke that I kind of referenced in the introduction, like the idea that dogs are just like super delighted by having humans around all the time and not going into work anymore. It's kind of a different story for cats, though, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, with COVID, what I've noticed just over the course of the year is there's like a real big uptick in either attention seeking behavior. Cats I can't get enough of their people because they're home a lot. And that's making the lines blurry as to when they should ask or receive the things that they want. You know, cats mm. don't really want things that benefit them. So they're always looking for, you know, the best case scenario. So if you're home a lot, you're gonna, mm. you're gonna be a provider. Some cats are gonna take advantage of that. Others are gonna be like, <laughs> get the hell out of here. You know, you're you're in my space. Uh cats are very independent. They also, uh, you know, mostly during the day, like to kind of flip off into airplane mode and <laughs> not do much. That's when we're home working. So that confuses them. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, it's been it's been a hell of a year. <laughs> it's been good for business. I'll tell you that. So if you had like one piece of advice for frustrated cat owners these days, what would it be? Or is that too difficult? Because it depends so much <laughs> on the cat. Uh, my, honestly, what comes to mind is just like give in, surrender, stop trying so hard. Um, because the more you push a cat, the more you try to control a cat, the more punk rock they get, you know, and that's why I love them so much. <laughs> so yeah, what do you think cats actually want from us? Um, just want us to leave them alone most of the time. <laughs> I mean, what do they want? They want to receive the good stuff when cats make decisions Sometimes they don't make the, they don't make them for you. <laughs> they don't really care how you feel. They're just doing their thing. And we get really wrapped up in that, you know, that, that emotional part, the emotional value of what they're doing. And it really isn't that complex sometimes, you know, they're not mm. peeing on your pillow because they hate you or they're mad at you or they dislike your new boyfriend or that you're out at night or whatever. Um, sometimes they're doing that because there are really easy and specific issues that like a, you know, a litter box that isn't clean or a box that's too small or whatever. They're, they're very scientific solutions to most of cat problems, but people really get wrapped in the emotional equivalent of what they think the cats are doing. So this job is like being a therapist. There's no way around it. You know, mm. there's, you, you do get impacted by what cats do in your safe space. Um, and it can cause all kinds of, things. So how much do you think your job of cat consulting actually is human consulting? In the <laughs> you know, it's 50, 50 for sure. <laughs> um, you'll hear my cat screaming in the background oh, right now. That was kind of a scream. It's real time. Uh, cat tension happening at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. He just used his litter box. So now he's going to sing his song. Oh, good for him after he uses it well dan thank you so much it was really a pleasure to talk with you absolutely he's gonna sing his song
All right, that's it for today. Keep an eye out for our book club panel chat that comes out this Tuesday. We're going to be discussing Ruman Alam's newest novel, Leave the World Behind, with Beth Ann Patrick and Lisa Page. The show is produced by me and Isabel Carter, and our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. We will see you on Tuesday. Oh, and also, hey, we went to Mars. That's pretty fucking cool, huh? Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.